Gia Grieve, good evening from the west of Ireland, and you're very welcome to Witness. Tonight we'll be talking about faith and mental health in light of the Church of Ireland's Mind Matters Conference, which took place today in Dublin. We'll also hear a song from the while away's Noriana Kennedy and the extraordinary story behind it. But first, we turn to the horrific situation in Gaza following the atrocious attacks on Israelis on October 7th. There's been a lot of political coverage of the conflict, but we're going to try to tease out some of the specifically religious ones. And I'm delighted to be joined by a world expert in interfaith relations. Dr Ed Kessler is founder-president of the Wolf Institute at Cambridge University, an organisation dedicated to interfaith relations across the world, but particularly in the Middle East. And I spoke to him before the start of the Sabbath. Ed, here in Ireland, while Hamas's brutal attacks on Israelis have been condemned in almost every quarter, the violence hasn't come as a complete surprise. And that's not for a moment to say it was in any way justified. But with Amnesty International calling Israel's treatment of Palestinians a form of apartheid, a label Israel disputes, of course, and with the people of Gaza confined and blockaded within a tiny enclave, even before the current crisis, does the Israeli government bear any moral responsibility for the current suffering of its own people? Oh, that's a big question, Siobhan. Mm. Um, I think... Uh, I, I couldn't accept that the atrocities committed by Hamas in Israel proper have any justification. Um, however, uh, there's no doubt that the marginalisation of Palestinians in Israel, um, who are citizens of Israel, and, and, and all of those Palestinians who live on the West Bank, and particularly in Gaza, uh, are suffering enormously. And of course, there's every reason and justification for resistance to that oppression. It's, in my view, wholly understandable and wholly acceptable. But what happened on Saturday or last Saturday uh, was not, um, in fact, in my view, undermined the Palestinian cause, yeah. as did the actions of those people who celebrated it. The Israeli government has stated that its objective is to eliminate Hamas now, which we're already seeing, will come at an enormous collateral cost to the lives and freedoms of innocent civilians. Most religions, Judaism included, have a strong sense about what justifies a war and how war should be conducted. Do you think Israel's current response is morally justified? And if not, what should it do? Where, where should it draw the line as it has to free hostages and protect its own citizens? Yes, I suppose w w what I would say to that is that there's no possibility of um, a conclusion of an Israeli-Palestinian conflict, a resolution of that conflict through warfare. It, it's just not possible. What has to happen is there has to be a, a sense of compromise, a sense of dialogue. That's the work that uh, I do. And no, there's, there's no military solution. There's just a dead end, literally a dead end. Um, and I think the Israeli government policy, particularly over under the Netanyahu government, uh, which has been going a long time, it's not just in its latest reincarnation, which is the most far right government with extremist, some extremist ministers, um, have contributed to a sense of hopelessness uh, amongst Palestinians and amongst many Israelis for that matter. Um, and if there's one thing that 
people of faith can bring, uh, it's it's a sense of hope. Um, and as a person of faith myself, um, as a as a Jew, um, there are plenty of texts in my scriptures uh, which we share with Christians as well, um, which give one a sense of of hope. And um, that's the only way forward. Military means are not the solution to this um, inability of Israelis and Palestinians to get, to coexist. What would some of those texts be? Of course, in the Torah and the Quran, there are texts that are about slaying those who oppose you. But there are these texts of hopefulness and injunctions for peace. Within my own tradition, of course, I think of of, of prophets, for example. Jeremiah gives the children of Israel a hope, a hope for the future. Uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I mean, how wonderful is that? There's a tiny verse that you probably, um, you don't, I'm sure, maybe you do know, Siobhan, but in the book of Job 13, 15, there's a, there's a verse there, which in the King James Version says, you know, Job is suffering from everyone around him, you know, it's telling him to, uh, to give up, but he still hangs on this hope in God. And in, in, in chapter 13, verse 15, in the King James translation, it says, though he slay me, that's God, though he slay me, uh, yet will I trust in him. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the Revised Standard Version, it says, behold, he will slay me, I have no hope. Hmm. You know, these are diametrically opposed you know, translations. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea that, and it's because the Hebrew is the word low in Hebrew could be ne- negative, not, or could be in him. You could, they're both, they're both valid. In fact, the, the Mishnah says, do I trust in him or not? Um, and so, you know, we have texts, we have to struggle with these texts, but what we shouldn't do is just choose the best texts of our tradition and, and the most negative of somebody else's. Ed, how do you persuade people who are hell bent on a violent response to instead engage in interfaith dialogue as a route to peace, as a route to political peace. I will engage with anybody, however offensive they may be, whether it be about me or other groups, whether they're anti-Semitic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Christian, whatever, as long as I don't feel personally threatened. Once you feel personally threatened, then it's very hard to have a dialogue. Now, there are plenty of people you can have a dialogue with who won't personally threaten you, even if you find them offensive. And the first rule, I think, that I've, I've uh, learned and been taught over the years is the, the rule of listening, of active listening. We're very good at speaking, <laughs> at me telling you what I think. I'm not so good at listening to what you think. And I think the first rule is to listen is to simply ask the question what's your story and then to say nothing wait for that person to respond i think listening is a we've lost the art of listening and once you've listened and hopefully had the opportunity to respond the second stage is to meet to encounter one another to share space probably in a neutral place Um, we have to encourage those meetings, those encounters, bringing together people of different faiths, getting to know one another. I genuinely believe that will make a difference. Thinking of of the Middle East, it's been said that all sides want peace. They do, but what they mean by peace differs, doesn't it? So 
It seems to me that for Israelis, peace means security. For Palestinians, it means justice. So until Palestinians show that Israelis can live safely without fear, and until Israelis deliver to Palestinians the same rights, freedoms and opportunities as their own citizens, there can't be peace. How can interfaith dialogue help resolve that catch-22, if it can? <laughs> it can help. It can help. It can't, it can't, bring, it can't bring resolution. Um, I think one of the things that interfaith dialogue can bring is an honesty, um, a recognition. And I think particularly it's better identifying the failings within one's own tradition before you identify it in somebody else's. Um, that, that my religion has been used and abused for evil, um, for prejudice. I can see religious nationalist extremism taking place amongst Jewish settlers of the West Bank, for example. And I know that Muslim friends of mine can see the radical Islamists of Muslim groups like Hamas, um, which are intrinsically violent. They don't represent Palestinian, the Palestinian people per se. So this is a global problem that we have. And what interfaith dialogue does, genuine interfaith dialogue, is bring together these different groups for the same ends, for learning about one another, learning how to live together, recognising that we've done it before. And I think it can make a difference, but it does have to tackle the difficult issues. And often we've ignored the difficult issues and perhaps amongst Jews, Christians and Muslims, the most difficult issue is Israel-Palestine. The extremists within particular religious groups can often end up representing the religious group itself, you know, and this gives rise to increases in problems which then help prevent dialogue, like anti-Semitism, like Islamophobia. How can we create a better media understanding of the realities of religious life where within most religious groups, the people who you've just been describing are at the very extreme end and do not represent the wider group? Yes, I think we're, we're very easily persuaded by those who shout loudest, the shrill voices of advocacy. And that isn't the way forward. Maybe the interfaith groups need to be a little bit more muscular, if that's the right word, hmm. a little bit more um, braver, lifting your head above a parapet just a little bit more and tackling those difficult issues. We being willing to tackle the difficult issues is not enough simply to say we're children of Abraham or we all believe in peace. I mean, who doesn't believe in peace? Hmm. You know, I think... Um, that when those extremists speak or shout, there are times we just have to ignore them. We have to get a sense of why they're so angry. Uh, the justification for anger amongst Palestinians is very clear. And that needs to be addressed by Israel, the state of Israel, in terms of the marginalization of Palestinians. But when there comes a certain line, the attack last Saturday, you know, way beyond what is resistance. And I'm really encouraged by number of Muslim friends of mine who have been willing to condemn that. Yeah. Um, and as much as I condemn Jewish racism, extremism, where it comes, yeah. um, then I have to um, be honest with my own faith community and I expect no less of my friends who are Christian 
Muslim and of other faith traditions. Dr Ed Kessler, Director of the Wolf Institute, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. I'm delighted to be joined by the Most Reverend Pat Storey, Bishop of Meath and Kildare. Hello, Siobhan. Hello, Pat. You're very welcome to the programme. Thank you very much for having me. October is World Mental Health Month, and here in Ireland, Pat, you've been instrumental in bringing about the Mind Matters Conference held in Dublin earlier today. Mind Matters started during the pandemic. Do you think we're still seeing ongoing mental health issues because of the trauma of the pandemic? I mean, I definitely do, and I think it'll actually be some time before that completely pans out. I mean, latest results would tell you that up to 49% of people felt have felt more isolated and more disconnected since the pandemic and indeed more anxious. And I'm sure lots of us would agree that we see an awful lot, huge amount of anxiety, particularly in young people. And because they've missed a lot of school and uni, I think, yeah, I mean, there's definitely still a legacy of the pandemic that we're all recovering from, although we forget about it very quickly. And the conference today, did the speakers address that specific context or were they talking in more general terms about mental health and how the church responds to it? I suppose it was wider than that. The pandemic was mentioned, uh, but the, uh, the whole idea of the, the conference and the project, this is the end of a three-year project, uh, so the whole idea of it really was that we would address openly mental health and the church and mental health and faith because sometimes faith can hamper mental health as well as help it because, you know, we feel that we're depressed and then we feel guilty that we're depressed because as Christians, we're not meant to be depressed. Uh, so it, it was just interesting looking at the survey results that for some people, their faith really helped their mental health and encouraged them. And for others, it was actually a bit of a barrier because they felt, why am I suffering like this? Does does God not care about me? And so it could be quite isolating as well. So it wasn't all positive around faith. You mentioned the survey and it was an extensive survey. Were there or are there any distinctively Irish aspects to how mental health is talked about and healed that came out through the survey? I suppose we were looking at it from a point of view of mental health and faith. So we were the survey was sent to our own clientele, if you like. So I suppose it's it's skewed from the point of view of, of Church of Ireland faith. Um, so from that point of view, it was Irish and that it was a national Church of Ireland survey. Um, but it wasn't that different in results in that the big thing that came across was the need to reduce stigma, you know, to be able to talk about these things, the importance of making connections, which is where the pandemic did come up because connections were severed. Uh, you know, I didn't see my grandchild for six months and I was devastated. Yeah. And then again, how faith can help or can hinder. And also clergy had a lot to say just about how they needed support because they're supporting others with mental health issues and with trauma. Who helps them to come to terms with their own mental health? Yeah, I noticed in the in the results of the survey that more than twice as many clergy disagreed as agreed with the statement the Church of Ireland provides me with good support for my own mental health and I wondered you know well the church is taking care of parishioners yeah. yeah who's taking care of the clergy and I mean that is that's the question we actually really want to address and we have begun to address we've started a clergy assistance package where clergy can access counselling free of charge and anonymously bishops are meant to pastor the pastors and Obviously, you know, I'm one person with about 30 clergy. 
uh, but I really do my best to look after them. And I also have a panel of um, a mentor, a spiritual director and a counsellor available to them. Mm. But we need to do more. You know, we really need to do more in terms of training and support for clergy. And my next move, once the now that the conference is over, is to chat to some clergy about what kind of help and support they really feel they need. The clergy who came to the conference today, were they coming from the point of view of learning about mental health or gaining support for their own mental health or learning how to better support their par parishioners or, or was this a mix of all, all the above? Yeah, Siobhan, I would say all of the above. Really, people, you know, clergy and lay people were coming for all sorts of different reasons. You know, we have people who've signed up to be champions, about 120 around around the country, and, mm. you know, they're probably there to learn more about how to support others. A lot of clergy would be there to... We've had a lot of specific training around mental health, and some people would be there because, you know, they're feeling rotten and they want to know, is there hope? And we believe there is hope and healing. Breaking the stigma around mental health is a huge part of what you've done so far in your ministry as bishop, and I wonder... What made you so interested in and committed to, you know, breaking that stigma? It's, it's something I have always been really interested in and it's also something that I have experienced. So I went through probably a short, sharp shock of a period of about six months when I was really quite ill with panic attacks. It came out of the blue and it went almost as quickly as it began, but it definitely leaves its legacy and, you know, it leaves you with a vulnerability, I think. Um, so I suppose that was it. that was one of the things was I thought I, I, I couldn't I didn't feel I could talk about it. I was rector of a parish. I didn't know where I could say, look, I'm not I'm actually not doing very well here. And that led me to think, well, if I'm feeling like this, how much more are other people feeling like that? And I think people think that those in leadership positions don't suffer. But they do. You know, we're people <laughs> and uh, clergy and bishops are human beings. And I've been very fortunate that that was quite a few years ago. I still feel I'm more comfortable if I have diazepam in my pocket. You know, it does leave its legacy of vulnerability and triggers that you are aware of that might, you know, uh, give you a poorer mental health again. So it's a combination of being interested in the subject anyway, having friends, obviously, who have suffered from depression, but also my own personal experience. While the speakers at today's conference, as well as many ordinary parishioners, attest to the positive force of the church and the parish for mental health, there's also those who claim that the church prompted deteriorations in their mental health. And I'm thinking, for example, of same-sex couples whose partnerships the church won't bless, or LGBTQ people who've been directed to conversion therapies by some not all churches, for their sexuality. And there's a lot of research to suggest that that's extremely damaging, as well as the testimony of people saying that's really damaging. And does Mind Matters take that into account, you know, the harm as well as the help that people think the church can enact? I mean, it absolutely does. I suppose one of the reasons of doing the project and holding the conference is to say that we, you know, we have stuff to learn here. We don't know it all. Mm -hmm. We're aware of the negative impact sometimes of the church on other people, uh, not just around sexuality, but around, you know, historic abuse and, you know, lots of things have happened in the church that we aren't proud of. Uh, so yes, absolutely. Um, we we didn't go into any kind of niche research because we just couldn't. It was a it was a broad it was a broad look at the Church of Ireland and. 
all of the people in that. But there is no doubt that there is a there is an element of folk, um, LGBT folk who are who were responding to that survey and who we very much want to listen to. Um, yeah, there are lots of scars from the church in various places. You don't have to scratch too far to find it. I suppose this project is trying, uh, you know, to to put stigma behind us, to raise awareness, to train people in how they should address those with mental health issues um, and to offer hope and healing. The Most Reverend Pat Story, thank you very much for your advocacy of mental health and for telling about it on Witness. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Noriana Kennedy. She's a multi-nominee at the RTE Radio 1 Folk Awards and a founding member of the critically acclaimed trio The Wileaways, who are based in Hedford, County Galway. Noriana, you're very welcome to Witness. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Noriana, both of your parents were involved in the church when they met. Can you tell us a bit about their story? Yeah, that's right. It's something I grew up with and was always a, a good story at a dinner party. <laughs> My dad was a missionary priest in the Philippines and uh, he had been there for six years working and he got a new colleague who was my mum and they started working together and uh, I suppose there was chemistry and um, eventually they ended up leaving and coming back to Ireland and getting married and and the rest is history. And having you? Yeah, myself and my brother. And was your mum in a religious capacity over in the Philippines as well? Yeah, yeah, she was a nun. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Did it ever grieve them that they had had to leave their vocations in order to marry one another? I don't know. I think they just went with the flow of of the circumstances. But for sure, they would have stayed in their roles and working at what they they loved and what they were they were good at. Apparently, yeah. but uh, yeah, unfortunately, the circumstances wouldn't allow that whatsoever. And there was there was quite a rigmarole and a lot of shame and a lot of. Like they, they thought they might stay in Philippines, but it was very difficult for my mum's family. There was a lot of um, scandal, I suppose, in relation to it. Mm-hmm. But uh, dad went home first and told his family that he was leaving the priesthood. The proud son was leaving the priesthood and uh, there were tears and emotion. Um, but when mom eventually came back, um, she was welcomed with open arms by, by my dad's mum. Um, Good. Which is lovely, yeah. And, yeah. and she really did. She she never looked back. She's more, she loves a cup of tea now. She's super, super Irish and, <laughs> and never kind of grieves, you know. Okay. Dad passed away four years ago. Oh, yeah. sorry. <clears throat> and mum moved to Hedford then after that. So, oh, uh, so we have her with her here now. Great. You're going to play Mother Says for us. Mm. What's, what's its significance? This is a song about, um, I wrote for my mum. And it's uh, it's about family and it's about rearing and it's about how no matter how hard you try, you always end up like your parents and uh, everyone gets a mention in there um, in the song. But it's it started from when my mum wrote me an email when we were on tour in Australia and she said, you know, we're, I'm always on my knees for you because she's, she's she's always praying for yeah. myself and my brother and uh, I kind of thought that was a nice line to, to put in a song so that's where it started. What's coming up next for you as a solo artist or with the <coughs> Wild Aways or both? Um, so a little bit of everything. November brings Bird in the Wire which uh, the Wild Aways joined together with Pauline Scanlon and a wonderful 10-piece band and we're performing in Olympia and 
Ulster Hall and in Limerick, um, a few venues over November. So With the songs of Lenny Cohen. Yes, it? yeah. yes, it's it's a gorgeous project yeah. that has just grown legs over the last few years. And then with the While Aways, we are doing a couple of Christmas shows, uh, one down in Clonmel and one soon to be announced in Clonover in Hedford. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Noriana Kennedy, thank you very much for joining us. Lovely to talk to you. And maybe you'd play Mother Says for us. Absolutely. Witness was presented by Siobhan Garrigan. The series producer is Alan Meany and research was by Alice Turpin. John Doyle was on sound with music by Eamon Bailey and Witness is an Alan Meany production for 